An A320 goes missing, and it is a mystery as to why. What caused this flight to crash into the ocean? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. And we're disasters. Disasters. We've already been recording for four and a half minutes. <laughs> and you didn't hear any of that four and a half minutes, unless you're a patron, and then you'll hear it in the blooper reel at the end of the yeah. month. We weren't doing anything related to the episode at all. but And then we tried to have our moment of silence for editing purposes, and then Milo barked. That was the moment that Milo started barking. So... <laughs> Uh, so sorry. This is going to be a fun episode, all things considered, already. Yes. So, not much to say, because we recorded yesterday. So, yep. Check out the newsletter. Check out the merch page. Were there any new answers to the trivia this day? Nope. <laughs> no. Lots of comments on Patreon about things, though. Well, yeah. So I logged out of Patreon on my phone. Oh. Because I have my separate, like, my personal Patreon. Right. right. And I was like, oh, I'll just log into the Hard Landings one, because I don't really look at it, and that's why we drink that much anymore. But then I followed that TikToker I've been talking about, mm -hmm. and so I stopped checking Patreon, basically, again. Gotcha. I reverted. I just see the emails. I only see them in I passing. The like, emails. they pop up on yeah. my phone, and that's pretty much it. It was just some comments from Bob. Yes, and Alan. And Alan, who confirms that it's definitely a Florida guy thing. Yeah. Because <laughs> we talked about the guy from oh, Florida. Yeah, yes. the Florida man. The Florida behaviors. man. Anyway. Other than that. Thank you so much for stuff. Thanks. <laughs> thanks for being patrons. Thanks for listening. If you're just a listener, thanks for participating, ordering, participating, ordering ducks, commenting, reviewing, all those things. Do all those things. Yeah. That's pretty much it. Yep. Anyway, what are we covering today, Nick? Today, we are covering Air Asia Flight 8501. Thanks to... Thanks to our patron, Danny, for recommending this one. Thanks, Danny. Thanks, Danny. This accident occurred on December 28th of 2014. It is pretty recent. You might note that date because it does become kind of important as to why this was such a big deal. Normally, this might not have gotten quite so much attention outside of the aviation community, but it did, briefly. For a reason. We'll talk about it. If you know, you know already. But if you don't, we'll talk about it. If you know, you, you know. know. Ick yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and if you don't know, now, now you, you know. know. This was an Airbus A320 with the tail number Papa Kilo-Alpha X-Ray Charlie. This is a standard A320. This wasn't any kind of special A320. This was like an original A320-200. So literally nothing special about it. This was a flight from Surabaya in... Indonesia to Changi Airport in Singapore. Not a very long flight, actually. The captain for the flight was Irianto. He was 53 years old. He had 20,537 hours. Good God. Total. Of which 4,687 hours were on the A320. The first officer for this flight was Remy Emmanuel Plessel. He was French. Yeah. Remy. I would, I would assume someone with that last name would be French. Yep. Remy Emmanuel Plessel. He was 46 years old. He had 2,247 hours total. That's a difference. Yep. He had 1,367 hours on the A320. For this flight, the captain was to be the pilot monitoring, and the first officer was to be the pilot flying. That's different. Oh, how I wish it was the other way around. We'll discuss that later on. Oh, boy. Because <laughs> that is a hot topic. 
in Surabaya, 156 passengers, including one company engineer, and six crew members boarded the aircraft for the flight to Singapore. The aircraft started its taxi at 5.31 a.m., local time. Early! (laughs) It was dark. (laughs) It's December as well, and they are, I think, basically on the equator. So, or nearabouts. They are just below the equator. Just below the equator. So it's technically summer. (laughs) But because they're around the equator, it kind of doesn't matter. It was roughly dark when they left. The flight finally took off from Surabaya at 5.35 a.m. local time. So it was just four minutes after it started its taxi. So it was a short taxi to take off. The takeoff and climb to cruising altitude were normal. The aircraft cruised at 32,000 feet on route Mike 635. M635. That is part of its planned route from one place to another. Reaching its cruising altitude at 5.49 a.m. It did not take them long to get to 32,000 feet. 5.57 a.m., the captain requested that anti-ice be switched on, and he made an announcement for the cabin crew and passengers to return to their seats and fasten seatbelts due to weather conditions ahead and the possibility of turbulence. Thunderstorms. He was staring. Thunderstorms. He was staring at thunderstorms. Nothing like those really early morning thunderstorms over the middle of nowhere. I cannot relate. Nope. Does not happen here. 6 a.m., the crew suddenly received an ECAM. An ECAM message. It has, it's like the computer messages. Yes. The Electronic Centralized Aircraft Monitoring System. Thank you. You're welcome. For some reason, I can never commit that one to memory. I always know what ECAM means. I just can't commit the actual It's the thing that says, hey, hey, do this thing because this thing is broken. Do this thing, 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 do this thing. (laughs) Right. Pretty much. If you need a reminder on how that works, (laughs) Qantas Flight 72. 32? Third. Yeah. Maybe 32? 32. No, it's 72. 32. I don't know. No, it's 72. (laughs) I'm not going to fight this one. I don't remember. I'm bad with numbers. It's 32. (laughs) I'm looking at the list. Okay. Anyways. So 6 a.m. on the dot, they received an ECAM advisory that stated, quote, auto FLT RID TRV LIM 1. Those are all separated things. So what it's saying is auto flight rudder travel limit 1. Oh, boy. Where to even begin with that? This just just the... follow the instructions. Yes. This alerted the crew to a possible issue with the aircraft's rudder. In short. So this also gives them prompts. The captain suddenly called out ECAM action, signaling to follow the checklist on the ECAM system to try to clear the fault. It literally gives you the way to clear the fault on the ECAM system. And that is thus what they do. You don't go into detail on that, do you? Not about following the thing. Okay. But they do it. They do it. We'll, we'll get there. They do it and it goes away. Right. 6.01 a.m., a further ECAM message occurred, accompanied by the master caution in the aircraft, which comes with the chime. This time, the message read, Auto Flight Rudder Travel Limit System, meaning the whole system. Something was amiss, indicating a further issue with the rudder system. The captain then performed the ECAM actions related to the faults, and the issues cleared. They cleared completely. 6.04 a.m., the captain contacted the air traffic controller requesting to deviate 15 miles left of their planned track, which was Mike 635, to avoid some weather. So they just wanted to go around the impending weather they were staring at. The controller approved the request. The aircraft then flew on a heading of 315 degrees. So they deviated from their path a little. 6.09 a.m., both ECAM messages and the master caution light and chime activated again. So up they came. Now there's a problem again. The crew followed the ECAM messages and actions once again and managed to clear the faults again. Gone. 
6.11 a.m., two minutes later, the flight crew contacted a different controller and informed them of their current weather avoidance plan. So they are now talking to a different air traffic controller and they're like, hey, just so you know, we're supposed to be on this route, but we are currently deviating from that due to weather. That air traffic controller acknowledged and requested that the flight advise when they were clear of the weather and back on track M635. Mike 635. 6.12 a.m., just a minute later, the flight requested a climb to flight level 380, 38,000 feet, when possible, and the air traffic controller instructed them to stand by. 6.13 a.m. and 41 seconds, so just another, like, minute and a half after that, the ECAM messages, Master Caution, and Chime activated for a third time. Once again, the flight crew performed the ECAM actions, and once again, the faults cleared, and all functions went back to normal on the aircraft. 6.15 a.m. and 36 seconds, less than two minutes later, the failures occurred for a fourth time. Once again, all of the same things. But less than a minute later, the air traffic controller cleared the flight to climb to flight level 340, or 34,000 feet, but the flight did not respond. The air traffic controller attempted to contact the flight several more times over this, like, following minute, but received no response. 6.16 a.m. and 27 seconds, so only a handful of seconds after they had the fourth error. The master caution chimed for a fifth time, this time triggered by an ECAM message reading FAC1 fault, F-A-C, FAC1 fault. This is a whole different thing. But this, but this fault can be triggered by the systems that were failing previously. So this is popping up. It's a long story. The way they wrote it out is very... I can read that for you. No, I, I got it. Okay, because it's ugly the way they wrote it out. It said basically it can come up for a series of reasons and this being one of them. Oh, I don't even go through the reasons. I'm like, here's the reason. Yeah, they wrote it out like eight times. Anyway. All the reasons that it could come up. And I'm like, just shut up. We get it. We know why it happened. Anyways. 6.16 a.m. and 44 seconds. The master caution triggered for a sixth time. This time reading auto fault fac 1 plus 2 fault. Ah. So now both of them have failed. There are two of these systems. Both fac 1 and fac 2. We'll talk about those in a little while. Because they are obviously important. But both of these systems have failed. When they failed, they caused the autopilot and the auto throttle on the aircraft to... Disengage. Hold on, I wanted to play the sound. Okay. Yes. That's the autopilot disconnect. That is the autopilot disconnect. One more time. Yes. That's what an autopilot disconnect on an Airbus sounds like. Actually a lot louder than it sounds there. It's ridiculous. You can hear it through the cockpit door if you're sitting in the passenger cabin. (laughs) Pay attention next time you're on like an A320 or an A319. I guarantee when you're just a few minutes from landing, you will hear that exact sound clear as can be if you're paying attention. I've heard it like by the wings. Yeah. If you're paying attention, you can hear it. Absolutely. It's loud. It just wants you to know for sure that you have disconnected. See, I wanted the real recording because you're annoying. It's way more annoying on on, on the Boeings, actually. And we've actually had people listen to that before, so we do not need to pull it up. No, that one is way more annoying than the Airbus one, if you ask me. I know the Airbus one better, though. Yes. It's because we mostly fly Airbus. Yeah. So the autopilot and the autothrottle disengaged. Within moments, I mean very quickly, the aircraft suddenly entered a 54 degree left bank. That's a lot. That's a lot. It's a lot more than normal. It's, uh, I believe the Air Disasters episode said it is twice what a normal passenger flight will ever roll. So on... Autopilot systems, you can tell it how far you would like to bank, and typically the limit to that is 30 degrees. Which is still pretty steep. It is, but they'll usually only bank at 25, so... Yikes. Yeah, it's more than double. 
Anyways, nine seconds after the autopilot disengaged, the first officer manually controlled the aircraft, reducing the left bank to nine degrees before it suddenly increased again to 53 degrees left. We'll talk about that later on. <laughs> I know. The first officer pulled up and the aircraft climbed to 38,000 feet at 11,000 feet per minute. That's a lot. I'm surprised they didn't stall. Well, <laughs> well, at Hold six, on a minute. Hold on a minute. Well, at 6.17 p.m. and 18 seconds, the stall warning activated. <laughs> Deactivating for one second at 6.17 p.m. and 22 seconds, so just four seconds later, before continuing for the rest of the flight. Which was not very long. No, it wasn't. Actually, it was a little longer than I anticipated, but not very long. The first officer seemed to continue to attempt to pull the aircraft up. Again, we'll talk about this in a minute. Don't jump ahead of me. And he did so for the remainder of the flight, basically. You might see why that's a problem. Okay, so now that Miranda's done like half the analysis in her head. <laughs> so I've seen the Air Disasters episode on this. Right. This one's not It was a long time ago, so I don't yeah. 100% remember what was wrong, but I do remember there was a stupid. That's okay. We have things to talk do about you, later on. Do you not done yet. Do you remember the story that we tell where we're like, hey, you remember how we showed Miranda one episode of Air Disasters and then she binged the whole season? Yeah, this was in it. This was that season. Yeah. <laughs> it was in the season. Yeah, it yeah, was, it was in, in that, that season. season. Yep. Yeah. 6.17 a.m. and 41 seconds, the aircraft's altitude peaked at 38,500 feet before a hard roll of 104 degrees to the left, which is inverted slightly, at which point the aircraft began losing altitude, falling at up to 20,000 feet per minute, which is free falling to say the least. Yep. The aircraft seemingly came back to wings and nose level around 29,000 feet, but still at a high angle of attack due to low speed. The stall warning continued as the aircraft fell at about 12,000 feet per minute still. When I say wings level, it's hard to imagine that the airplane is still kind of falling straight down as a brick, but it's only moving 140 knots, which is below the speed it's capable of flying at, at that altitude and without any flaps. So it is just... Dead weight. Dead weight. It is falling. It is still well in a stall. They said that it was basically a 40 degree angle of attack. So even though the nose is basically level... It's falling at a 40-degree angle down. Mm-hmm. So that's bad. Well, it's not good. No. 12,000 feet per minute again. Yeah. 12,000 feet per minute it's falling. 6.18 a.m., the aircraft disappeared from Jakarta radar over the Java Sea. 6.20 a.m. and 35 seconds, the aircraft struck the water at a descent rate of 8,400 feet per minute. That's not small. No emergency messages were transmitted by the crew, and the ATC was unable to contact the flight. Search and rescue operations began right away. We'll talk about this in just a moment, but that got a lot of attention, of course, pretty quickly. The aircraft broke up on impact with the water, and when the wreckage was located, it was quickly apparent that nobody had survived the accident. All 162 on board had perished. Some of the wreckage had sunk to the seabed, but some boats did manage to recover some parts, including the tail section with part of the rear fuselage, part of the center fuselage, the wings and both main landing gear, which were all still attached to one another. Additionally, some interior sections were found floating and some passenger seats were recovered. But much of this floating debris was found 30 nautical miles from the main wreckage site due to currents because it did take them a couple of days to kind of start finding all the different areas where everything was. That couple of days that it took is actually kind of the important part because this happened very shortly after... MH370. Yep. Like nine months later. Which is still missing. To this day. And so the problem with that is a lot of people were like, what is going on in that part of the world that's making airplanes disappear? Because for a couple of days, they were like, we don't know. We don't know where it went. Which well, had everybody panicked. Spoiler, they found it. They found it. This one turns out 
Very unrelated. That all you got? That is it. Okay, this investigation was performed by the National Transportation Safety Committee, Committee or yes. the NTSC, of Indonesia. Fun fact, in Indonesia, they're actually known as KNKT because their real name is Comité Nacional Kesalamatan Transportasi. Okay. That was a really weird mixture of accents. I'm so sorry. I don't know what just happened. I don't know. Anyway, much like last week, they don't have a lot to work with because all the good stuff is underwater. Yeah. Okay. Unlike last week, we don't have survivors to talk to. Nope. This one, unfortunately, there was nobody. So everyone and their mother assisted with the wreckage recovery. This includes China, France, Russia, Singapore, the UK, and Indonesia. When I say this got a lot of attention, I mean, don't get me wrong. There were people of all different nationalities on board, which is why they had basically the right and the resources. The authority. But when I say this had a lot of attention because of the similarities to MH370, I am not kidding. You, Anybody who was basically present at the time would probably recall how much of a big deal this was. This was almost as much of a big deal to the public in the area as MH370 and the public around the world, to be honest. So all of those navies are out diving, searching, sonaring. Yep. I'm sure that's not a word. I'm sure not. Such a process takes time because the underwater locator beacon on each black box only has a signal emission range of 6,500 feet, which, while yes, is more than a mile, still means that's a lot of area to search. Yep. Yep. The water in the area was only 40 meters deep or 131 feet, which seems weird to me, but sure. Sure. But that's still a lot of time to be looking. In the meantime, investigators were able to examine the floating pieces and determine early on that an explosive did not cause a crash as there was no residue or scorching. After a two-week search, the flight data recorder was found on January 12th, and the cockpit voice recorder was found the following day. Both were able to be read out by NTSC facilities with the assistance of the ATSB from Australia, as well as the BEA from France. France. The CVR contained two hours and four minutes. Pretty good. Here is what was on the CVR that Nick already read. Yeah, sorry. Because we don't coordinate very well. Well, but there's also like, I don't know, that's that's pretty much all they had in the story. At 5.57, the flight attendant or flight crew, the instructions unclear, mm-hmm. announced to the cabin that they were approaching bad weather. At 6.05, the pilot in command requested a deviation of 15 miles to the left, and the second in command conducted the crew's briefing. At 6.01, the master caution warning came on, and the flight crew was heard turning off and turning back on the flight augmentation computer, one and two, or the FAC. Yep. This is what actually drives... With the FAC. Yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> this is what actually drives the automation on Airbus, is the flight augmentation computer. I'm sure it's supposed to be FAC, but it's going to be FAC. What the FAC? Sorry. So they restarted the FAC 1 and the FAC 2, and the master caution went away. At 6.09, it came back, and they followed the ECAM instructions, restarted both facts, and it went away. At 6.11, Jakarta Air Traffic Control asked that the flight report when clear of weather, which the pilot in command acknowledged, but also requested a higher cruising flight to 38,000 feet, and the controller responded to stand by. I don't know if they planned to try to go over the storm, but what I can tell you is they couldn't. They couldn't. Okay. It went up to 44,000 Oh, good God. Which is higher than the ceiling for the aircraft, so... At 6.13, the master caution warning came on again. Again. And once more, the crew ran through the ECAM procedure, and it went away. At 6.15, air traffic control cleared the crew to climb to flight level 340, right as the caution warning came on again. Right. This is why they weren't responding. Now, here's where Nick left things out. Yes. There was parts of it in the story they didn't even write about, and I know that. But also, 
they kind of left it. I think they kind of left it off, like at the point where traffic control communication kind of stopped. Yeah. That's where they stopped any communication in the cockpit. I know some of the things that happened, and I did leave them out on purpose, though. Good. So I don't have the exact verbiage, mm-hmm. but the captain said something along the lines of, wait a second, let me try something different. Yeah. Again, I don't know exactly what he said, but something like that. He's trying to avoid insanity. Yeah. Same. Less than a minute later, the master caution came on for a fifth time and was accompanied by the autopilot off sound, which is a very clear and obvious sound. Nine seconds later, the stall warning came on for one second and then went away. Eight seconds later, the pilot in command told the second in command who was flying the plane to level, 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 and then later to pull down, pull down, pull down, pull down, as the stall warning came on for four seconds, paused, and then came back on and continued to impact. Which is a heavily confusing... Dad, don't talk to me about it. I will get there. Yes. So, what the heck was that error? I want to talk about it. The flight data recorder actually provided the answer for this. It had recorded 1,200 parameters... Of the previous 174 hours of flight. Yep. Which is 74 flights. That is an effective FDR. (laughs) And it turns out that's actually really important in this case. Yes. It recorded, indeed, that the crew had de-energized. That's a way to say it. Sure. Turned off. The FAC 1 and 2 during the flight. But why? The fault was recorded on the FDRs coming from the rudder travel limiter unit. It's a computerized device that limits how far you can move the rudder depending on your airspeed. This is also very important. We'll talk about that in a moment. Well, I yes, but so basically the faster you're going, you can't move your rudder as much because it can do absolutely devastating things. You remember how they went into a 54 degree roll? Shut up. Okay, that's why I said we'll get into it in a minute because I didn't know if you had that. (laughs) The first four master caution warnings were all because of the RTLU. But the fifth, the one that happened after the captain said he was going to do something different, spice it up a little, was triggered by a FAC-1 fault. When this happened, some parameters controlled by FAC-1 fluctuated, leading to a rudder deflection of one degree, and the ailerons also deflected. Then that all stopped. And then a sixth master caution was triggered by a FAC-1 and 2 fault. Mm -hmm. So parameters controlled by the FAC-2 also fluctuated, including the RTLU and the rudder actuator, which deflected the rudder to a whopping 2 degrees. Whole 2 degrees. But listen, that's what caused the 54-degree bank. Yep. A 2-degree rudder input when they were moving at cruise speed led to a 6-degree per second roll. So they got to 54 degrees quickly. In like 9 seconds. Yep. It's fast. It happened fast. This is also when the autopilot and autothrottle both disengaged. All that happened at 6.16.43, and then nothing happened for nine seconds. Right. Nothing. That's kind of the alarming thing. No one did anything for nine seconds. There were no control inputs for a whole nine seconds until finally the FDR recorded the first officer pitching up 15 degrees and rolling to the right, which decreased the left bank from 54 degrees to nine degrees. The right side stick input was then turned back to the left... So that the aircraft rolled back to 53 degrees to the left. And then the pitch was at 9 degrees and the stall warning triggered until they reached an angle of attack below 8 degrees. But then the second in command continued pulling up until they were at 38,000 feet with a climb rate of 11,000 feet per minute. Right. The side stick remained at maximum pitch up until impact despite a stall warning sound. Their highest pitch was 45 degrees nose up. That's a yikes. With the slowest speed of 55 knots indicated. How in the world? I mean, it just to me, I get that he was a newer pilot, but still pulling up. Let's hold on. I know. There's a lot of questions. There are. Let's start with the RTLU. Why did it keep having errors? 
A good look at the maintenance logs revealed it had been doing that for a while. A long time, actually. It had 23 occurrences in the maintenance log since January. And they never fixed it? It's December. This had been going on for a year. So maintenance's solution each time was to do exactly what the crew did. Reset the FAC and it solved the error each time. It cleared the error and legally that was a fix. Except it kept happening over and over and over again. Right. So clearly something was wrong. We have covered some similar things before. So technically it was never identified as a repeating problem. Each new defect was treated as a new defect. The company maintenance manual states that a defect is deemed repetitive when it has been reported more than once in seven flight sectors or two days where three rectification attempts have not positively cleared the defects. But it did. But they cleared the defect each time. Okay, but if... It keeps happening despite the fact that you keep clearing it. There's something wrong. Yes, so I'm pretty sure there's a recommendation about that. There's a lot of them, actually. (laughs) Investigators, knowing that this is the problem, went and took a microscopic level look at the RTLU amidst the wreckage to discover that there was a crack in the solder of the electronic module. Which is why it kept triggering. Yes. And it was intermittent. And guess what? If they would have like looked at it and replaced it, it wouldn't have happened anymore. Yep. Pretty simple fix. But that by no means necessitated an entire whole crash. No. On its own? No. Shouldn't have caused an airplane to crash. The warnings were a nuisance, yes. But what did the captain do differently? <laughs> well, you see, this is where the stupid comes in. There's a bit more than that, even. The answer to this also came from maintenance, actually. Oddly. Mm-hmm. Three days before the accident, the captain was about to fly the accident aircraft to Kuala Lumpur when the RTLU had the error on the ground. So he summoned maintenance into the cockpit. They rebooted the facts, as you're supposed to do, but then the error immediately came back while the tech was still standing there. So, while still on the ground, the maintenance tech did something different and pulled two circuit breakers, one on the overhead panel and one on the panel behind the first officer. One panel's AC, one panel's DC, I think, is how that works. Don't yeah, quote me. Depends on the aircraft, but yeah, probably. But they were on the ground when that happened? Yep. What would happen if the captain tried to do that in the air? Uh, it turns out you crash. Not necessarily. Again, still doesn't warrant a crash. So, investigators tried it in a simulator to see what would happen and immediately experienced all of the exact same stuff. Right. It disengaged the autopilot and the autothrottle. From what I understand, yes, this was a very bad decision, but he could have maybe made it less bad if he had managed to restart facts one and two, but he just pushed the breakers back in and did not recycle the facts, which they had previously done to clear the error. So if they had just pressed those two overhead buttons, it would have restarted, I think, instructions unclear. Yeah. But they emphasized that because they didn't do that, the situation was worse. Right. I don't know if it would have fixed everything, but right. pressing two little buttons could have solved some things. Because this had not been accomplished, anything controlled by the facts was unreliable, including autopilot and auto throttle. This actually also explains the delay in the reaction. The captain was up and out of his seat, and it's likely that neither pilot perceived the role because neither was looking at the attitude indicator, and it can be difficult to perceive if you're not paying attention. They did not notice the role until the captain sat back down. They had a hard time really determining what the first officer was doing, if he was like looking, watching the captain pull the circuit breaker and push it back, or if he was watching the faults, seeing if they would disappear. In any case, he was not paying attention to his instruments. Right. Next question. Why didn't the first officer level off the plane? Well, he tried. He rolled to the right, right? That's what you're supposed to do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But then he rolled back to the left. Right. Any idea why? Uh, my guess entirely would be uh, disorientation. Exactly. 
So he had spatial disorientation and vertigo, which was exacerbated by the spontaneous manner of the situation, which degrades human performance. They had been in the left role for so long that he perceived that as being level. This also explains him continuing to pull up. His disorientation led him to think that they were heading downward and he was saving them from a pitch down situation. So he kept pulling up, which wasn't helped when the captain was telling him to do something very confusing. Pull down. Right. Yeah, I think what he meant to do, what was he push, meant to push down. was push down, right? Right. Push the column forward, push it down. In this case, it's a side stick, so it's just a... Right. But when you're in a panic situation... And English isn't your first language. It, right. it can For either be one very, of them. very uh, confusing and like... He knew what he meant to say and then couldn't say it properly, and yep. then it caused a whole bunch of confusion. Yep. So one more question I have, which I'm surprised Miranda hasn't asked at this point. Why didn't the captain take control of the aircraft? Exactly. He is so experienced. He is. So listen, he tried, technically. Technically. There is a button on each side stick that will lock out the controls of the other pilot, but you have to hold it down for that to activate, and he pushed it briefly twice. Didn't hold it long enough. So eventually... He was on his control going one way. The first officer was on the other side doing the other thing. And at that point, Airbus aircraft will take the average. Yep. Which was still not good. No. And the worst part about that is that this is cross controls Mm -hmm. between two pilots without communication, for one. In two, because this is an Airbus, it's possible. On a control column in a Boeing, they're mechanically linked. Yep. You can't move... One without one, the other. One direction and move one the other direction. It's not possible. But because this airplane is fly-by-wire, now modern Boeings are also fly-by-wire and they can be independent. But these all Airbus are fly-by-wire and therefore also independent on either side. So the stick you have does not move jointly with the one on the other side. They don't motorize them. When you input, that's mm-hmm. the input you know, on your stick alone. So clearly there was a huge breakdown in crew resource management Big time. across the board. Big time. Big time. Nothing went as it should. That breakdown in crew resource management, though, had something to do with the company. Because the company didn't have a procedure in place for the captain to take over. Oh, I didn't read that part. Yep. Didn't exist. Glad you did. Well, if there was no, like, training on how to do that, then how would he know how to do it? Pretty much. The other thing they didn't have was the most important thing of them all. They didn't have upset recovery training. Which is why... When the airplane was upset... They didn't know how to recover it. They didn't know how to recover it. You just make it sound like the plane was sad. It was sad. It was sad. It was sad. (laughs) And falling very, very heavily toward the ground. And screaming with errors. Yes, it was. And therefore, they couldn't recover. So it crashed. Yep. That's pretty much sums that up pretty well, actually. That's pretty much the whole of it. Okay. Well, we'll take our break. And we'll come back with some of the normal stuff. Yes. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. We're back. All right. Let's do some of the normal things. There were a whole 54 findings. I'm not doing anywhere near that many. Because <laughs> a lot of them were just restating a lot of the things we've already talked about anyways. So it's just really unnecessary. But we're going to go through some of the ones that I thought were a little more interesting and a little more important. 
Number one, and this one I left in here because it is quite interesting, actually. They found that the aircraft was airworthy prior to the occurrence and was operated within the weight and balance envelope. Okay, forget the weight and balance part. I'm sorry, it was airworthy? Yes, technically. Technically. Technically it was, yeah. But we're going to get into a few findings here in a little bit about why that's not true. We kind of already touched on it. But why that shouldn't be true and wouldn't be true for most airlines in the world. They found that the weather en route of Mike 635, partially covered by the cumulonimbus clouds formation between 12,000 feet and 44,000 feet. Basically, there was no going over or under that for them. The FDR data indicated that the flight was not affected by the weather condition, and investigation concludes that the weather was not a factor in the accident. This was important because of they the thought fact it might have been because of the fact that all of the communications they had had with air traffic control in the minutes leading up to their disappearance was entirely about weather. Yeah, that was the only thing they had to go on when they initially started the investigation, when they were looking for the airplane, and it was not a factor at all. Right, turned out that had nothing to do with it. Not a thing. Absolutely zero. Isn't that amazing? They were sure when they started the investigation that that might have something to do with it. It wasn't. Had nothing to do with it. They found that the rudder deflected two degrees, two whole degrees, resulting in a roll rate of six degrees per second to the left and without pilot input for nine seconds, resulting in the aircraft rolling to the left uncommanded up to 54 degrees. It's still astonishing how you just think about two degrees caused them to roll so quickly. But it did. It did. It's like when you're going really fast on the highway yep. and little, little inputs, inputs on, the... on your steering wheel can yep. cause you to go really far. Oh, yeah. Yippers. They found that the delayed response from the first officer was likely due to his attention not being directed to the PFD, primary flight display, as many events occurred at this time. However, the investigation could not determine where the first officer's attention was directed at that time. So we don't know what he was looking at, but it was obvious in those nine seconds that it wasn't at the attitude indicator. It wasn't at his attitude indicator. Right. He had no idea that they were in a roll. I have to assume that they must have been maybe in the clouds. I mean, the sun was coming up, so... There's a lot of disorientation can happen during these twilight hours, but I have to assume that they were in the clouds or something because he didn't have any idea. semblance of idea yeah. of what direction they were heading. That became really evident when on the next point, they found that after the right side stick activated, the aircraft roll angle reduced to nine degrees left, so not quite wing level. This rapid right rolling movement might cause an excessive roll sensation to the right. So the first officer might have thought that they were rolling very quickly to the right and had overcorrected. Right. The first officer may have experienced spatial disorientation and overcorrected by shifting the side stick to the left, which caused the aircraft to roll back to the left up to 50 degrees. That's the whole spatial disorientation thing. That's where, like, literally he probably pulled so hard to the right, the airplane rolled to the right. He felt that, felt the overcorrection and thought, oh, I'm going too far and rolled back to the left when, in fact, he had never come back to wings level. Well, and then the other thing that investigators talked about was because everything was such a sudden onset mm -hmm. of, like, zero to 60. Really, it's like 20 to 60. Right. But that also contributes to disorientation and vertigo. Yes, it does. Big time. There are a bunch of points here going into disorientation that I am skipping and about the exact parameters and everything. But I will touch on this one because this was kind of the important point. They found that the FDR recorded at 6.17 a.m. and 15 seconds, the aircraft pitch reached 24 degrees up, nose up. The captain commanded, pull down, pull down. However, the FDR recorded the right side stick backward input increased, resulting in the angle of attack increased up to a maximum of 48 degrees nose up. So he's still pulling back and they're increasing the angle of attack nose up. So the, the airplane's nosed up, but it's falling down. Right. The standard call out applicable during final approach and go around mentioned in 
SOP should be pitch, pitch, if the pitch angle reaches 10 degrees. There were no standard callouts for flight phases outside the final approach and go around. This is something they hit hard on because this is another place that CRM really broke down. And a big part of that has to do with the company and its training. Didn't force them into using regular callouts, which is only standard per the ICAO and IATA, even in 2014. So that was a whole thing. Skipping a bunch. They found that the flight crew had not received the operator upset recovery training on Airbus A320 as it was not required according to the Airbus flight manual. Hey, Airbus, maybe fix that. That was a recommendation. So basically, they hadn't received it. It wasn't the company's procedures, and most airlines do this anyways. As part of their standard operating procedures, no matter the aircraft, they teach you how to do it. I think some airlines kind of assume that pilots know how to do upset recovery because they learn it kind of along the way, but this airline isn't necessarily one of them. (laughs) You know what they say about assumptions. Right. So it should still be done and should be simulated. That said, they found that the pilots were trained and had experience of recovery from approaching a stall. The condition of stall at zero pitch had never been trained as the training for stall was always with a high pitch attitude. So... They knew when they were approaching a stall, which usually would come with a high pitch attitude. But then when the wings were level, the screw was never trained to understand how they could be in a stall in at wings level. Right. They weren't trained on how to recover from that. They were just trained to bring the nose down to level, basically, from a high pitch attitude. Nose down. Which it turns out, yeah, you should just nose down more than that and you might recover the speed and thus recover the aircraft. They found that the stall condition is classified as an emergency, which required the captain to take over control. Hmm. The CVR did not record any command by the captain that they were taking over control of the aircraft using the standard callout. Standard callout to take over control described in the standard operating procedures is, I I have control. I have control. And responded by the other pilot transferring the control by callout, you have control. Yeah. This is standard in pretty much all of aviation. Even when you fly with... An instructor, generally, in the United States. I mean, that's how early it starts is literally like in your initial flight training. Usually your instructor will teach you to make that call out to make it clear when... Abundantly clear. Abundantly clear when one pilot has control and the other doesn't anymore. So you you should be doing those call outs. And that's just a normal thing. And they also state, or by activating the priority button for 40 seconds, which he didn't do. That's the the lockout for the other That's a really long time. It is a very long time. And Do they have a recommendation about that? Not necessarily. Damn. And there's good reason why, though, because you don't want to lock the other pilot out on accident. <laughs> okay, True. but 40 seconds during an emergency? Agreed. But the call-out is supposed to fix that. <laughs> Having good CRM and good communication is supposed to fix that problem and saying, I have control, and then you don't have to do that until you actually have control of the airplane instead of fighting for control. They found that the approved operation training manual for flight crew chapter 8 described the special training subchapter 8.11, the upset recovery. The upset training has not been implemented on Airbus A320 as described in this manual. So though they had some form of something in a manual that said they should do recovery training, they never did. They found that since 6.17 and 29 seconds, both left and right stick input were continuously active until the end of recording. So both pilots were just actively doing different things with the side sticks. All the way until the crash. For basically three whole minutes. The inputs were different where the right side stick was pulled for most of the segment. The nose down forward pitching commands of the left side stick became ineffective because of the summing function of the system resulting in ineffective control of the aircraft. 
So because the captain was pushing stick forward and it was negating. Right. They were negating each other. They found that there were no approved means for flight crews to handle multiple or repeated master caution alarms in order to reduce distractions. So they didn't have a procedure to basically deal with the fact that they kept getting warning after warning after warning after warning after warning while also trying to do their responsibilities. And at one point, do you say, okay, these warnings are hindering my ability to fly the airplane? Okay, yeah, but maybe also don't pull a circuit breaker in flight. Right. Which was I mean, in, in or a circuit can. breaker that you don't understand the repercussions of right. when you pull it. It's actually Is really, it in the checklist? No, don't do it. It's actually really interesting that you use that particular phrase because the report brought up that there is a certain phrase in the Airbus manual mm-hmm. that a flight crew, should they understand the repercussions of pulling a circuit breaker, yep. has the ability to do so. Yes, they do. And they determined that he thought he knew the repercussions because he watched a mechanic do it on the ground. Right. But he didn't understand how it affected it in flight. No. The, the repercussions is, I understand how the airplane will react to this in the I air. do it. Yeah. Right. So this is a mistake because in, you know, anytime, I mean, I guess it just, I'm not saying that this should necessarily be common sense, but anytime you're going to pull a circuit breaker that affects a major function of an aircraft, especially an automated one say, pulling the entire flight augmentation computer offline when you pull the circuit breaker. That seems like a obvious thing to me, but obviously it wasn't <laughs> to them. Anyways, they found that ICAO Annex 6 stated that one of the duties of pilot in command, or the captain, is to report all known or suspected defects in the aircraft after completion of the flight. This requirement has not been included on the current Indonesian Civil Aviation Safety Regulations. So while the ICAO requires it, Indonesia decided, no, we don't need to do that. They were they require that the captain take over <laughs> and also that the captain report when there's an issue after a flight is done. And this to me is just kind of ridiculous because it should be standard in the industry and for most people, for most, for most pilots in the industry, it is where it's called a, a squawk. Mm-hmm. Anytime you have something that's wrong in you know, layman's terms, it's a gripe sheet. Anytime you arrive somewhere and you know something is wrong, you have to write it up. That is the captain's responsibility. You complain about it. Yep. Professionally. Most of the time. Normally. Right. Most of the time, this is a digital thing nowadays, but it used to be literally they had like a pad in the airplane and you would write it up and hand it to the ramp as soon as you got there or to ops or whatever. Now it's pretty much all automated. So they just say, hey, there's an issue with this. That's it. End of story. They found that the maintenance records showed that there were 23 rudder travel limiter problems starting from January 2014 to December 27th of 2014. So this was by far and away not the first time this happened on this airplane, nor was it like the last when it happened the first time (laughs) on this flight because it happened another five times, six times. So this just was not, this was not good. This was not good maintenance. So they go on to talk all about all the failures in these findings, and I don't touch on these because I just felt it was excessive. They go on to talk about each individual part's failure, as well as the cracks in the solder and making sure that that's inspected and fixed and all those things. And that's all the kind of obvious thing (laughs) related to this. All of that to say that when this incident occurred the first time, they should have just replaced the part. Yeah. And especially after the second one. Oh, yeah. Fool me once, fool me twice. (laughs) Fool me 23 times. (laughs) Definitely should have done something about it. Yeah, it was bad. Two more findings. 
They found that the DGCA audit process did not identify that the operator had not performed upset recovery training. Also, the audit process did not identify the inadequate maintenance processes relating to recurring faults, which we'll talk about in the recommendations. And finally, they found that the Indonesian CASR, they're basically FAA, did not regulate the requirement for the pilot in command to report all known or suspected defects as specified by ICAO Annex 6. So they just literally weren't following international code by operating as an airline yeah. and as a company and as a country. Shocker. I'm so shocked. Yes. Indonesian airline? What? I know. Unfortunately, this is a regular thing, <laughs> that part of the world. So that's it for the findings. That's all I'm doing for the findings because there were a lot more that were unnecessary. What we don't have in this report is a probable cause. What we do have is a Christie. Yes. Five contributing factors. <laughs> <laughs> what does that mean? We love you. <laughs> yeah, you freaking better. Anyway. Anyway. <laughs> Sorry. So what we have are contributing factors. I will read them verbatim. It does not start with the probable cause is. Sorry. Because they didn't write that. They didn't write one. It just blows my mind. These contributing factors are basically a problem. Oh, there's a footnote about the contributing factors. Yes, there is. Contributing factors are those events in which alone or in combination with others resulted in injury or damage. This could be an act, omission, condition, or circumstances if eliminated or avoided would have prevented the occurrence or would have mitigated the resulting injuries or damages. I feel like they pulled that right out of the ICAO. (laughs) Anyways. Point one, the cracking of a solder joint, which is not pronounced solder. Right. Of both channel A and B resulting in loss of electrical continuity and led to RTLU failure. To put it simply. Point two, the existing maintenance data analysis led to unresolved repetitive faults occurring with shorter intervals. The same fault occurred four times during the flight. Yep. Next, the flight crew action to the first three faults in accordance with the ECAM messages. That's not a complete sentence. Right. (laughs) Following the fourth fault, the FDI recorded different signatures that were similar to the FAC circuit breakers being reset, resulting in electrical interruptions to the FACs. Yes, no, really. Second to last point, the electrical interruption to the FAC caused the autopilot to disengage right. and the flight control logic to change from normal law to alternate law, the rudder deflecting two degrees to the left, resulting the aircraft rolling up to 54 degrees angle of bank. English is fun. They didn't write that well. Nope. And last point. Subsequent flight crew action leading to inability to control the aircraft in alternate law resulted in the aircraft departing from the normal flight envelope and entering prolonged stall condition that was beyond the capability of the flight crew to recover. Yep. Yeah. That pretty much sums it all up in what are contributing factors. They have this whole giant section after this called safety actions that I Which is things that they did. It is things that they did. And I did not touch on this in specific because... They write it as 22 safety actions addressed the safety sensitivity personnel and aviation security and compliance. 11 safety actions on maintenance area address. Okay, so the whole point of this is they didn't actually write out all of the specifics on this. So I couldn't actually even tell you all the specifics, but what they did hit on was summing this whole section up under safety actions, the things that they actually did. They corrected the CRM issue at AirAsia as well as within Indonesia. Finding out that they need to do recovery training was a really big part of that. <laughs> as well as standard callouts was a really big one, which, again, we'll do the recommendations in a moment, but that was a really big part of their recommendations. And on top of that, the maintenance thing was how do we change this from the definition of being a recurring fault is something that has not cleared and continues to be an issue over multiple flights or days, rather being an issue that keeps reoccurring with the same parts and is literally the definition of insanity. Doing the same thing over and over and over, expecting a different result. It's right. just not causing a different result. The same thing is happening. It turns out 23 times in a year. 
18 safety actions on flight operations. So this whole thing about dealing with standardizing flight operations within an airline because and the airlines period, that was a whole thing. So the important thing, the recommendations, things that they really actually specifically wanted out of this and which did change. I can tell you that they recommend that the KNN KT, which is the body that did this investigation, recommends that Indonesia Air Asia to re-emphasize the importance of standard callouts in all phases of flight. Yes. Just standardizing that. That's a really big thing. That's what opens up CRM to being successful, is communicating, doing the callouts. It would have saved them fighting for control, basically, for the last three and some odd minutes. They recommend that... Indonesia Air Asia to reemphasize the taking over control procedure in various critical situations of flight. So again, defining who actually needs to have control and per the ICAO and also per standard operating procedures and also per Indonesia, the captain was supposed to have taken over control when a stall was present. Yes. That was a thing that didn't happen here. And it wasn't trained well either. They recommend that the director of civil aviation to ensure the implementation of air operators, quote, training of flight crew is in accordance with the approved operations manual. They write this really poorly. I just don't like the way they write it out. So because they had some bits of the things in the standard operating procedure, they're basically saying they should have been following that anyways, because duh, and they didn't. They didn't even train to it. They recommended the Directorate General of Civil Aviation to ensure that air operators under CASR 121 conduct simulator upset recovery training in timely manner. They need to do recovery training, mm-hmm. period. They recommend that the Directorate General of Civil Aviation ensures that air operator maintenance systems has the ability to detect and address all repetitive faults appropriately. So making sure that that is a standard thing. If it, Just don't just keep pushing it down the line. When the fault happens, there's a reason for it. And yes, clearing it using the ECAM procedure per se. Sure, the fault goes away, but that doesn't mean that the part is fixed. So they need to be able to identify... And most maintenance, so most maintenance is automated on most airlines these days. It's all very much documented electronically. Right. And they actually have maintenance controllers that look over these airplanes and they look over the faults that they've had over a certain period of time. And it is their function to make sure, hey, we see that this fault has occurred multiple times over multiple flights. No parts have been replaced in relation to this. So we can assume the part needs to be replaced. That's how most airlines operate. In the modern day. That didn't happen in AirAsia. They recommend to the Director General of Civil Aviation to ensure that Indonesian civil aviation safety regulations to regulate the duties of pilots in command as specified by ICEO Annex 6. So making sure that the captain's role is specific and specified well within Indonesian regulations, not just the airline, within Indonesian regulations to follow the ICAO. It's only really important. They recommend that Airbus consider developing a means for flight crews to effectively manage multiple and repetitive master caution alarms to reduce distraction. Figuring out a way to handle all the different alarms and the different cautions over and over and over again and not be too distracted by it all. I think that's more a CRM thing than an Airbus thing, if you ask me. But they made it an Airbus thing because they thought it was annoying how many times the Airbus would spit out faults, (laughs) basically. It happens. That's what what you're going to get with an automated aircraft, though. Right, right. So they kind of retouch on two things here, but they're basically supporting previous recommendations. One of them from the French BEA 
recommending ensuring that future programs include initial and recurrent training relating to taking over control of aircraft equipped with non-coupled control sticks. So making sure that pilots are aware when they're flying a fly-by-wire aircraft that they could be fighting for control. They need to make it very clear who has control. And that seems like an obvious thing, but it's specific to aircraft where they could be cross-controlling one another. Right. And understanding the implications of that. And finally, they recommend expediting the implementation of mandatory upset recovery training earlier than 2019. So basically, there was a standardization for upset recovery training set for 2019. They're saying we should do it now. (laughs) And most airlines already were. Most airlines already were. So this just basically fixed that problem pretty much right away in Indonesia. Because this got a lot of attention because of the whole disappearing over the ocean, just like MH370. In a very similar part of the world, I might add. So... Between everything happening within that year and in relation to two missing airplanes, that was heavily, heavily scrutinized when they found out that this had, of course, nothing to do with MH370, but that this was avoidable. Right. For a myriad of reasons. If they just had kept clearing the error. Yes, it would have been annoying. But they would have been able to get to their destination. Right. And moreover... Had the pilot, the captain, taken over control when the stall was present, he might have been able to recover the aircraft instead of fighting for control. And if he hadn't pulled the circuit breakers, of course, yes. And also, on top of that, just having recovery training would have been a really important thing, as they should have and would have. Yeah. Had they been a little more standard in things. Yeah. So, there you go. That was AirAsia. I don't remember the flight number. 8501. 8501. There you go. Thank you so much for listening. Remember to check out the Patreon page and the newsletter and Ducks and the merch page. And if you want to send us stories. Yes. We'll do those. (sighs) And check out social media, everything. We don't post too often, but we do post Literally, we post on Tuesdays. Yes. And you know who does it? Me. Yep. So. Yep. After I get to work in the morning. So. Does it happen right? Well, the posts on Facebook and Twitter come out right when the episode comes out because it's automated. It's automated. Yep. But like the Instagram doesn't come out till I get to school. Yeah, that's fair. So the Instagram, the Instagram, the Instagram. We should do TikToks of what? I have no idea. Yeah, that's the problem. We got a weird email about that, by the way. (laughs) We we did. I deleted it. Yeah, it's fine. It was a it was a spammy. We want to do your TikToks for you. I, I don't want you doing my TikToks. They're like, we'll watch, we'll get a 60 second of your video. I'm like, we don't have video. Right. She tells me you have no idea who we are. You're just. Right. You're just spamming. Spamming. Different <laughs> podcasters. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. We hope you have a safe and healthy week and we'll catch you all next week. Keep, Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy and edited by The Lovely Page. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.